And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Rachel Swirsky on the Crude Street Podcast. And welcome, is it welcome back, Rachel? Is this the first time we've talked welcome. to you on the podcast? I guess it is. Yeah, That's I know we've talked about it before. Yeah. My apologies. No. Um, <laughs> I think I'm the one who dropped the ball. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, I, I know. When, when was your your um, when the world when the world became quiet? Is that the title of the collection? That the collection, yeah. But it came out in like 2014, I think. I was going to say that's yeah, eight, eight been or nine years ago. Yeah. Still, it's an excellent collection. I, I I guess being subterranean, it's been sold out for years now. It actually sold out before the publication date. That's so, yeah. which was very cool. Which, which on one hand, yeah. it is lovely, but there's always that thing where I think you want that that feeling like you have a book. You can go into a bookstore and see a book and be a person with a book, and which that sort of segues neatly into the fact that congratulations, you have a book. I have a book. My mother was yes. so excited. <laughs> you have January fifteenth, and I was doing a little bit of digging. This is a book that has. A long, long, long history, because near as I can tell, we first talked about this in 2016. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when we were, I, I think we, we talked about it either at or not long after the uh, Kansas City Worldcon, when we talked about the idea of you writing a novella for, for me at Fertor.com. And then we went back and forth, we talked, and then probably late 2017, we were lined up for a completely different story. We were going to do a, a project, I think, called The Woman at the Tower Window, which sounded and sounds lovely. And then I think we fair to say life intervened, didn't it? Yeah, well, also the novella itself intervened. It just decided to keep getting longer and more spirally and less coherent. I mean, hopefully it will eventually be coherent on the other side, but I was like, this is a lot of interjections for opium dreams, and I don't know how I'm going to get it back into 40,000 words. <laughs> so uh, hopefully it will be a novel. I have three very long pieces of not quite finished things that I would like to be novels. The novels are very long, but this novella is actually as long as it can get pretty much before it becomes a novel. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it was sort of, was it, I think it was like in maybe 2018, 2019, that you came to me and said that you had this idea for a, pro, a, a story about universal basic income. And that's the underpinning with, of uh, January 15. What was it attract, that attracted you about the idea of uh, UBI uh, to, to build a story on? Well, there was actually a contest. I don't remember the name of a contest, but it was a max 5,000 word thing that um, happened not long after I moved to Portland, uh, which was in very late 2016. And I wrote something that was 5,000 words for it, um, which uh, I may have had all, maybe three of the four or four of the four storylines, just very, very compressed. And it didn't win the contest. But I was like, there's so much more here that I wanted to write. So I was able to expand on it. And, you know, then the stories could breathe a little bit because they didn't each have to be like 1,200 words. Um, because but, I'm sorry. But the idea of, as a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Gary. No, no, finish your thought. <laughs> I wanted to follow up on that. Um, as a good American liberal, the idea of universal basic income is interesting. I don't know how well it functions within the U.S. American context. Uh, as I said in the intro to the book, that's not necessarily um, the practical details weren't necessarily mm. where I was coming in and thinking about it. I was um, rather than the economics, which I, I think the economists are more likely to figure out than I am. I've definitely heard people arguing that it's impossible with our tax situation or that it is possible. But I um, feel like those arguments are better held in different spaces. I wanted to talk about what uh, culturally it might mean uh, for these things to happen. And um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, we're a society that still doesn't have um, universal basic health care, right? Mm. So uh, thinking about ways in which people can actually, yes, Jonathan is lucky compared to the rest of us, uh, <laughs> thinking about the ways that... Um, we might be able to get some of that functioning in the United States, find some way for people to function more clearly in capitalism is definitely something that I am interested in and where I come to it in an ideological capacity. I was talking with a social worker this afternoon uh, from, I forgot where she's, Michigan, Ypsilanti. And I was telling her about it. She did not know about it. She knew your name. And she, she was immediately excited because she's been advocating for this. And she knows perfectly well that in a state like Michigan, 
it's not going to happen anytime soon and at the federal level. But, but the thing that struck me as unusual about it is when I started thinking about the economic questions. And you're right, you're not dealing with the economic questions. You're not really spending much time dealing with uh, distribution questions. There's one day a year that everybody gets their check. Um, and I was trying to think back on other economic-based science fiction. And there's not a lot. There's not At the level of what you're talking about, the actual economic impact on a variety of different kinds of characters is fairly rare. You get people like Asimov writing elaborate sort of management systems for the galaxy, and you've got uh, what post-scarcity scenarios and things like Star Trek or Ian Banks, or you've got consumer satires like Frederick Pohl. But what you're talking about here is, I was thinking, this is what a science fiction story might have looked like in 1929, wondering what Social Security would be like. Right. That's a cool idea, too. I, I actually wonder if, if somebody, I would love to see somebody write that as if they were in 1929, imagining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it's probably worth just framing just for a minute for people who are listening that this is the story of four different women at four different uh sociocultural and economic levels in society in the United States on a single day, starting on, on starting at dawn. And it, it, it goes back and forth between, between Hannah, who's a abused mother on the run to take the text with the thing. Janelle, who's a young woman raising her sister, who's a journalist, Olivia, a student who's quite wealthy and Sarah, a child bride who's trapped in a religious cult who's basically trekking off to pick up her UBI on UBI day. What this really strikes me as being about, and you could tell me that I'm wrong, is it's about what power in your life money gives you if you have access to it. Does that seem like a fair synopsis? Yeah, I, I would say that's a pretty fair synopsis. That's definitely um, the question that I think a lot of the social issues come down to with universal basic income is what does yeah. it mean if people have access to money? And you have different people in different political positions who have very different ideas of what human nature is. Um, you know, whether it will make people lazy um, or whether it will um, enable people to have more economic opportunities. And uh, I think that there are probably very complicated effects from any kind of sweeping change like that, which will include good things, bad things, weird things, um, surprising things. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Was there a you. character that, that opened the story up for you that was the, the first step into what, what you were going to do with this? Yeah, actually, the first character was Janelle. I um, was doing, I write a lot of story beginnings. If I can't do anything else, I can always write the first 500 words <laughs> of a story. Uh, finishing, that's craziness. But, you know, <laughs> first 500,000 words, that's easy enough. And I had started writing a thing about a uh, reporter who went to a elementary school and was interviewing um, the students. And one of the students said, um, we need reparations. And she was like, wait a minute, you're in fourth grade. Where do you even know that word? Um, and so that kind of wove into the universal basic income concept to me, because one of the more um, persuasive arguments that I've heard, and I've heard people speak on multiple sides of this, um, is about reparations. I have heard people say that um, the economic impact of using UBI um, universally rather than targeting it specifically um, as reparations toward um, the black community uh, might be preferable because it's politically potentially more feasible. Um, and there are also a lot of issues with reparations about how you're gonna distribute it, who gets it, um, because there are different black populations in the US um, and on the other hand, there's the enormous, huge, um, just absolutely incredible wealth gap between black and white households in the United States. Mm -hmm. And by and large, you can't actually fix a problem without trying to address the problem. We've seen when you add like affirmative action that uh, the first women to be hired are still the white women. The first people to be hired are still the men. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you've got the two different categories competing because they're both uh, disadvantaged. The one that is more advantaged will win out. And so it seems like that would probably apply to universal basic income, that it would help things, but maybe not help other things. Um, and I don't have a solution to that, but I do think that it's really weird and upsetting somehow that we are, however many um, decades, uh, you know, centuries into being past having enslaved the, 
these people who built a large portion of our nation and then being like, we'll give you stuff and then being like, whoops, never mind. But on the other hand, if we look at how we've treated the treaties with Native Americans, I guess it's actually not that surprising <laughs> that we would well, make there, promises there, and not fulfill there them. There are probably limited ways of dealing with, I mean, the city, the suburb of Evanston, just north of Chicago, has uh, they've passed some kind of a reparations bill, but it's not based on global things or, or, or centuries long things like slavery. It's simply recognizing how they've treated their black population over the last hundred years or so. So it's, it's limited in scope. But what, what interested me, and it's interesting uh, when I look back at the novella, that you are describing somebody who's escaping a terribly abusive relationship. And that's that's kind of almost the thriller aspect of it, you know, trying to stay away from this stalker. And you've got somebody who's a member of a cult, but and you've got the reporter. To some extent, the most disturbing part is this, I think it's Olivia, who is the rich, basically wealthy kid. Um, and the and, and you're not making an argument that this should be a balanced distribution of wealth. In other words, the rich kids get the money too. It's universal. And so they deliberately waste it. Um, and I don't think I'm giving anything away because it's called waste day in the first page or two of that chapter. And I, and I, I, partly it's outrageous because it's just way too believable. I mean, I think I know people who would do things like that. And you'd think, okay, is there, is, is there a social argument to be made that people who get this UBI and don't need it could donate it to groups? To, could they do good things with it? Would they do good things with it? And the cynical answer is no. The cynical answer is that they'll go to Aspen and figure out the most creative ways to waste the money. Um, so in many ways, that struck me as the darkest part of the whole novella. Yeah, that's definitely one of the um, objections to social issues that I saw most reading about universal basic income. It, well, but this is universal. Why are we giving it to people who don't need it? Um, I'm actually, for me, I still find the fact, I find the universal part of it to be um, inherently important, mm -hmm. even though those people don't need the money and might use it in very um, annoying, terrible ways, <laughs> um, because uh, otherwise you end up with gatekeeping and you will start ruling people out that need the money. Um, and we spend so much effort arguing about who deserves and who can receive various social services um, that it takes a lot of money. Um, we spend a very large amount of money trying to find welfare fraud, which I believe is higher than the amount of welfare fraud. Um, Probably. And there's no reason to build that into the system. I, uh, I think there's a reason, you know, why universal is is um, just logistically important. Philosophically, it's also saying you deserve this income for being part of our society, right? As a member of our society, you have an inherent dignity, and that applies to everyone. Um, but on the other hand, it would be very upsetting to watch the people who really wanted to waste some money do whatever ridiculous thing they're going to do. Well, you certainly have to imagine that, that if you were a Sarah or a Hannah, looking at what happens with this group of people would uh, would be very distasteful. But, you know, I'm completely compelled by the universal aspect of it personally. I mean, we have a national disability insurance scheme here, which is supposed to support all of the people with disability. Uh, and it was only set up about eight, ten years ago. And they now the, the, the current problem that's being reviewed again is that the, the NIS people were spending more money on high-end lawyers to review applications to review rejected claims than they were than they would have been paying if they'd just paid out the claims. And they almost always were, were grant and ended up granting the applications anyway because they were legitimate. In so the United the whole... States, yeah, mm. um, in the United States, it's pretty much. Uh, common knowledge, I haven't actually gone through the process of applying for disability, that you always fail your first application, no matter how distressingly disabled you are. Um, yeah. There are several conditions that are theoretically automatic qualifiers. I have one of them. I not applied for disability. My accountant was like, they're just going to turn you down. <laughs> um, and there are other reasons um, why it doesn't make a lot of sense for me, even though technically um, I would be eligible for the program in various ways. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm disabled, but on the other hand, I'm fairly comfortable. You know, I have, um, I'm married. My husband makes uh, enough money to support us. But I have friends who are desperately poor, who have three or four different disabilities that are all horrible. One of my friends regularly, um, some of her organs fall out and she yeah. places them. Sure. 
And that's great that she can replace them, but she has to fight so hard to get her disability benefits. And that is so upsetting, Um, which does get back to the idea, yeah, that um, we waste so much money in reviewing and this hostile attitude about who deserves what. Well, and if you you look at the... uh... Uh, distribution, this is a vague, vaguely analogous situation, but if you look at the distribution of COVID relief funds for small businesses a couple of years ago, uh, and at least here in Chicago, a huge amount of that money ended up with well-to-do corporations and their lawyers figuring out ways that they could siphon the money off. Yeah. Uh, so there were a lot of small businesses that got nothing out of that program, and a number of them went under in the neighborhood. I live a number of them. But then again, you see that hundreds of thousands of dollars were filtered to some, I don't know, giant aircraft company or something. Yeah. Yeah. I actually tried to talk about that a bit in the novella as well. Um, There are a number of um, potential consequences that I sort of included as brief snippets, which was one reason it was useful to have a reporter character so she could go Mm -hmm. bug people. Um, But yeah, it is quite possible that the implementation of a program like this could cause somebody to their, their precarious economic situation to tilt in some way so that they end up losing a small business, um, even if that's not the intent. Um, uh, one of the scary things is when you implement new programs that take over old roles, rather than adding income, sometimes it just takes the income away. In California, let's see if I can get this right, it was before I was born, um, Reagan passed Prop 13. Um, I'm Basically, um, Prop 13 caused a lot of problems for the California school systems. Um, and they had taxing that was, uh, I'm sorry, I, I definitely uh, am feeling the this is before I was born and it's been a while since I talked about it, Tim. I remember the um, uh, The uh, California tried to implement you know, various tax systems to keep our public schools going. Public schools had been very good for a while. Um, and then at some point, the lottery... Um, Somehow, I think there was a, the lottery was paying a percentage, the public schools, something like mm-hmm. that. And it was like, great, more money. So they just reduced the amount of government funding to the school by the amount they were getting from the lottery. Um, and so somebody who uh, is relying on government services for basic health care needs, there are disabled people who have a lot of uh, medical bills, but also, you know, there are government funded home workers that come in to help them with everyday tasks or whatever it is. Um, could lose that during the transition, either on purpose or by accident. But some people can't even survive a small accident. Like um, many of us, if we lost our government care and they were going to fix the program up in three months, would be okay. Mm. Some people can't actually weather that long. You know, if you lose too much care for a month, then you're dead. Um, So we would have to be very careful about those transitions. I'm not anti-UBI. I just think things are. No, 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 no. And what I have to say, nor is the store, nor is the book. I mean, the book is—it's to me—is interesting because, on one hand, it strikes me as a classic piece of science fiction because it asks the core question of science fiction, which is, um, what comes next, and and then it takes the idea of we're going to have. The universal basic income, is it good? Is it bad? What does that do? It doesn't get into the whole mechanism of it. I think that's interesting. What I think is really structurally interesting, and I'm be curious to know when this became the structure for the story, is it's a single day. It starts at dawn, yeah. it basically ends at dusk, and it, it chops across the country as, in effect, this storm sweeps in from the East Coast. And that means that something which arguably could have very little structure to it has structure laid onto it just by the chronology of the day and those sorts of things. When did that sort of structure emerge? I'm not sure. I knew I wanted to do five stories. Um, there were initially five. Uh, the fifth one was going to be um, the ex-con who makes bad pots. Um, I would have found that very entertaining to write, but um, it was the one I had done the least development on when I noticed that the novella was going to argue with uh, trying to go over its word count. So I had to, I cut the one that I hadn't worked on. Um, anyway, uh, so for me, I guess somehow it came in baked in with the initial idea, although um, it is a separate 
there is clearly like some kind of thought process going on there, but I don't know what it was. It sort of came in with the initial inspiration. I don't even really remember how I decided to tie it together with a storm. I think it was snowy that year. But. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I mean, it, it, it generates suspense in your opening section, certainly, because it looks like the storm of the century kind of thing and you follow the storm. But it did occur to me that it would have been it would have been the same story with a lot of radically different details if you'd said it during a heat wave. Um, and the reason I mention that is the most, uh, again, talking about public policy, not making news, the most fatal um, weather event in the history of Chicago is nothing like the Chicago fire. It was a heat wave in 1985. Um, and we've had another one this year. So I think one of the things that fascinated me about your approach is that it's not a highly science fictional approach. It's not taking the approach that this is what will happen if this policy is implemented. Um, the the classic description of a science fiction story as a as a thought experiment, which Le Guin and others have argued about. And I think you're making the case that a, a, a large scale policy like this is not a thought experiment. It's thousands and thousands of thought experiments that vary from one case to the next. And so you could have gone on. I would have read 20 or 30 more characters if you'd wanted to give them to us. <laughs> and I, you know, I totally did at points. And I was like, maybe don't do that. It's, I, I think it might have gotten weighed down faster than I would have had to figure out a different structure, I think, to, to go through probably could have gotten it to six, I think, something like that. <laughs> I definitely, you know, wanted to. I was like, wait, what if I have this whole new idea? No, no. Although that's actually my writing life in general. I'm trying to write a novel and I'm like, this is cool. And then I'm like, oh my God, it's a different idea. The idea is new. <laughs> I should go chase it. Um, so which makes finishing things hard. Uh, but um, I, I did want to say uh, in terms of, I, I have seen people reading this uh, with the assumption of my politics being either pro or anti-UBI, mm -hmm. which is very yeah. interesting to me, especially, you know, I feel fairly agnostic. But I've seen, um, there was at least one review that seemed to assume I had like hardcore conservative politics. And I was like, well, that's interesting. It's always a little yeah. bit satisfying when you get somebody who reads a piece of fiction that deals with politics and they're like, well, clearly this person is uh, from the opposite ideological camp. And you're like, well, I guess I did a good job of representing those characters. Yay. Um, I don't know. But, see, I, I wouldn't have made the assumptions of, of your, your personal politics, but it seems to me that in certainly three of the, of the four narratives you've provided there is a strong case of how something like UBI can positively impact it. In one, it basically ultimately frees them. In the other, yeah. it seems to offer the possibility of freedom. The other, it helps support them. You know, so it's like, I don't know how they could see it as being anti in some ways. Yeah, I think they're all positive about UBI. I, I think that there is a reasonable argument because I sidestepped all the practical issues about distribution. Um, sure that in fact this is a more positive depiction of ubi than is maybe realistic um because yeah. there's just so many problems i was like no i'm not dealing with that that's not what i want to talk about um other people you know talk about that better than i do but i read them all as having a um at least somewhat mm. pro ubi inflection um so it's been interesting to see to me um where people agree with me or not so i had one review that talked about how um, I think it was Sarah, um, the, the girl in the cult, was obviously um, an, a pro-UBI thing because it would get her out of the cult. And I had a different reviewer say that it was obviously anti-UBI because of the abuse of the system that the cult perpetrates. Um, I agree that it would be bad for cults to use UBI, but um, they definitely would. Um, it's the all of the um, use of UBI in the story is pretty much all based on things that currently happen with welfare systems. Sure. Um, in as, as far as the cult plot line is concerned, and it, it, it sounds like sorry. go ahead. Because it sounds like this that writing January fifteenth necessitated a lot of research into social welfare and social welfare systems. I mean, you spent a long time on this. I, I spent a number of years on it. I um, One outcome of working on a bunch of things at once all the time is that I do end up um, working on things over a long period of time, which gives me some space to grow the ideas, I think, you know, come back to the story. And But now I've read several news articles about X, and so that inflects um, 
how I am interpreting the story as I move on through that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the other th- things that I found really interesting um, for me, um, the situation the abused woman is in where she is being stalked, but she does have the money to keep going um, yeah. is much better than the situation that she would be in if she didn't have the money to keep going and they were still stuck yes. in the house. And I did see a lot of people saying that it looked like it was the same level of bad situation. And so um, I'm not invalidating their perspective, but it was definitely not how I was thinking about that scenario. Um, and it's just interesting to see how people interpret the characters. Yeah, I also I think Olivia, the rich girl, is um, fairly substantially um, scapegoated by her friends group. Uh, and... Um, not at a point where she understands what's going on socially, either with herself or with the broader culture. Um, uh, There's definitely a reading of this um, that could pose her as neurodivergent. um, In particular, you know, um, she doesn't understand any of the social interactions um, in general. Uh, She's... uh, only got some academic um, ability. She's got some academic abilities that are very heavily developed, and others that are not very heavily developed, uh, which can happen to some people who are autistic if they're fixated on one thing. Um, and so, I mean, I think to me, she's neurodivergent. Uh, so I see her as like um, coming out of this weird place that she's been wedged into, as a wealthy, um, wealthy woman who. Uh, is probably scapegoated by her family as well um, and is in a very cramped box where this incident is helping her to open up to become a person who can see what's going on um, and see outside herself a little bit better. Um, And for me, that was very um, emotionally compelling. But I've noticed that many readers found uh, the behavior of the people around her and and her non-objection to it so abhorrent that nothing else mattered. And I completely understand where they're coming from as well. Um, <laughs> well, there, 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 there are a lot of toxic characters just off screen or, 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 or peripheral to the main characters. And I, I, I wondered what you would, I wonder if you'd get reactions. I mean, the abusive ex-spouse uh, in, 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 in the story of the woman escaping is, is, is an abusive uh, wife. Um, and I, and which is completely reasonable in terms of abusive relationships or abusive relationships. But I wonder if you had people reading something into that, that you had uh, essentially a same-sex marriage, which resulted in, which obviously does happen. I actually didn't. And I wonder to some extent whether that's because there are so many women in the novella that it didn't come across necessarily as a comment on a woman so much as just like there's an extra woman. I had recent. Well, no, sometime during the process, I was reading the book, um, Why Does He Do That? I'm not going to remember the author's name, which is about, um, it's a a a therapist who's describing his experiences working with um, abusers in domestic abuse. And one thing that's very interesting is that he is mostly talking about a dynamic of men abusing women. There are lots of reasons why that might be the dynamic that you center. But he does say this abuse, you should also know, can happen in lesbian and gay relationships where one person um, exerts power of the other. But what he was adamant did not happen was women abusing men. Really? Which is incorrect. Um, And I was like, oh, I know where this came from. This came from listening to some of those people who will say, oh, but it's exactly the same between women and men. There's no differences, whatever. And so you go, no, no, there are differences. I, you know, I have, and you like dig down on the fact that, you know, it has to be 100 and zero instead of, you know, whatever it is, 30 and 70. The numbers change a lot, I think, also depending on what you're counting as abuse. Sure. My memory is that the number is almost stable if you like average emotional and physical abuse rather than splitting them up. Yeah. So it's much more heavily physical abuse from men, but there are lots of women who are jerks too, so they use other tactics. Um, there are definitely times when I've had people, uh, anti-feminists, um, be like, oh, you're clearly an anti-feminist too, because, uh, or they think all feminists should defend women's virtue in situations like this. And I'm like, oh, no, really? no, no, 
feminism is the acknowledgement that women are people and people suck. So plenty yeah. of women suck. Well, did you think about, um, uh, did you think about the genres of storytelling when you were looking at the different stories? As I mentioned, the opening of it with the, uh, with, with, with the massive snowstorm and the uh, basically escaping from a stalking ex-spouse, that, that reads like a thriller. And then you have an investigative reporter, which is kind of like in another genre. And the cult thing is like, it's like you're writing in several different narrative modes uh, alternatively. I don't think that's how it felt to me, but I, the voices are all very different too. Yeah, like yeah. Um, writing Janelle was easy <laughs> because she just wants to play with words and talk about random things. And her sister wants to do the same thing. So like, it was like, yes, I, I am enjoying this conversation that I'm writing between the two of you, but also if this section gets any longer, it's going to be its own book. So come on. <laughs> um, and I really enjoyed the cults section, but it was hard sort of for the opposite reason, because that narrator is incredibly closed down. She yeah. doesn't want to give yeah. you any detail about what she's seeing because she's very protective about her thoughts. Mm. And so it was like, but I need this to have some, I don't need it to be the exact same length as the other stories, but it has to have somewhat equal weight. So you're going to have to say mm. more things or I need to have more things happen. Mm -hmm. And that was an interesting experience too. Well, well, I mean, that's because I mean the stories you're telling in each section are different kinds of stories in some ways. You know what what the, the characters are encountering, uh, and what you have to get through in order to un unravel those stories. You know, and so the kind of roles that the journalists play, as opposed to others, is quite different. I actually okay. also um, one of the last decisions that I finally made was how to end Janelle's story arc. I really mm. wanted her to find something. And because she has the broken buzz cam in her purse. And so like yes. most of the time it was like, oh, she saw something, but they made her turn off the cameras. Um, but her buzz cam accidentally recorded it. Um, and that's kind of cool. But then it was very like, all right, what is going to be the right issue to center in this way? What doesn't feel forced, but what would actually cause change? Because I had a mm -hmm. whole bunch of like police brutality ideas. And this was before the... Um, last round of Black Lives Don't Matter. But still, I mean, we've had films of Black people being abused by the police and oppressed groups being abused by the police for a long time. It's not going to cause um, a huge amount of change for her to have one more of them. Uh, so then I was playing with the idea of the loyalty oaths, um, which is mentioned in the story. She says she's heard about um, uh, Indigenous Americans being pressured to sign loyalty oaths in order to get access to their money. Um, which is based on uh, the internment camps, the Japanese internment camps, mm -hmm. um, and forcing people to sign loyalty oaths. Um, I do want to mention, actually, because she also says that um, indigenous women are being pressured to agree to be sterilized in order to access their money. And um, I just uh, like to mention this when that comes up, um, and since the novella is under discussion, uh, Native American work women were coerced um, very heavily into agreeing to be sterilized or not even being told they were going to be sterilized. Um, in the United States, um, the at least until 1975, but it seems likely afterward as well. Um, so I, um, you know, I, I wanted to emphasize that that's real. Um, not that it's really happening right now in that particular way, but women were told we won't allow you to go home with your baby unless you agree that we can sterilize you or sterilized cool. in the middle of procedures and not told they were being sterilized. Um, so I was thinking of dealing with something with an indigenous group in that way, but it all felt very staged and very forced. And I was like, well, this is about her relationship with her sister. Maybe it just needs to be about her relationship with her sister. Yeah. Um, so it, also may read as um, a different genre because it's sort of set up in one way in my thought process before changing. It, it could very well be. I mean, it's, it, it, it must be a challenge when you've got, um, you, you've got a potentially very controversial issue and, I, and, and, and with all kinds of complication uh, that you don't want to turn it into a parable that's easily sort of translated, in, which, which is what could have happened had you tried to write a kind of universal novel about how this works and um, some of the mentions, uh, some of what you mentioned about forced sterilization could easily happen with the UBI at the local level, depending on how it's administered. And that gets back to the question of what kind of bureaucratic structure would 
would would would allow this would people in uh, uh i don't know illinois or california have better luck than people in utah or florida uh, depending on how it's administered locally and I, I understand not getting into that because then you would have had an economics textbook with stories sprinkled throughout it um, but i think still the novel the novella makes us think about those questions um well, right. Um, and one of the reasons I have the clashing systems of administration is sort of to point that out. Even if there were a universal um, uh, system that did not vary by state or locality, it would vary by state and locality because people, um, you know, people will find ways to manipulate systems to their advantage or to their perspective. Um, nothing is ever actually carried out the way that you want it to be carried out. Um you know, the best laid plans, mice, men, and all of that. Um, so when I was talking about the sterilizations and you were saying that could happen locally, that's mm -hmm. how it was done. It was done locally. Yeah. There were people passed laws against it. You could not sterilize a Native American woman before she was 21. And the people who wanted to do it did it anyway. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like um, the hodgepodge of administrative uh Capacities allows me to talk about the ways the system can break um, without getting too much into the details of how those breakages occur, um, because I think that it's the breaking that matters, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, no. I, I thought the other thing, you mentioned um, Janelle's buzz cams, for example, and in a way, I think actually I said this in my review, that this is close to what you could you could view as minimal science fictional in a, in a technological sense. There are the buzz cams and follow cams, which are probably what, about 18 months from becoming reality right now. Um, the rest of the social structures are very similar to what we have right now. This is kind of a day after tomorrow feel. And I, I'm assuming that's a uh, deliberate choice to not make this into a technological future in which the problems are satisfied by, for example, Asimov's solution to the uh, administration of this would be to just let robots do it. They can be, they, they can't, you know, have biases. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then I'd immediately, my husband was teaching machine learning for a while. So, you know, what are the machines learning from? Because if you try to teach a machine to grade papers, it's going to mimic the biases of the who grade papers, unless you're very careful about what you, uh, information you give it. Um, yes, it was a very deliberate um, choice. Um, and that was partially because I didn't want to get into an argument um, about how we get from here to there. Um, there are probably lots of things that would happen, need to happen. In I've United lost a little States. bit of volume with you. Oh, sorry. There are probably a lot of things that would need to happen in U.S. American culture before we could adopt something yeah. like this. Um, I was very vague about what changes those might be in the novella. <laughs> Um, because I, I don't feel like it is what I was doing um, and therefore not particularly productive to be like, okay, it takes these changes, but not those changes. And once I start to bring it up, um, you're definitely going to have a lot of opinions or, or feelings, and I would too, about is it realistic for um, you know there to have been this kind of presidency or this kind of international change or why didn't this other thing happen and uh that's also why it's an undefined amount of years in the number of years in the future um those are all very interesting questions but they're not um the questions that were being addressed here uh one thing that um uh did happen with the fact that it's the next day or day after tomorrow is um you know writers we have little tricks like i'm sure you know these mm -hmm. tricks when you want to signal look it's very near future and it used to be black presidents well, that yeah. happened. Fantastic. Yeah, you can't do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> Love it. And then uh, it was legalized weed. Well, that's really not going to signal anymore. So I was like, okay, illegal abortion. <laughs> I really hope that would last a little longer. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you find people responding to this? Because um, there's a tendency among readers and um, among critics and reviewers in the mainstream press looking at anything like speculative fiction, that everything has to fit into a dystopian or utopian box. Do you find readers saying, well, this is a dystopia because uh, of awful things that have happened in somebody's life? Or do you see people viewing this as utopian in some way? I feel like that question has gotten placed onto the question of whether it's pro or anti-UBI. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, and so they're not using the words utopian and dystopian, but there's definitely some readers who are like, okay, but I was reading this to get an opinion on whether or not to do UBI. Uh -huh. I'm like, I'm sorry, that was, <laughs> don't ask me for that. There are 
people who are way better qualified to answer that question. I'm I'm thinking about UBI. I don't think I can answer UBI. Um, uh, so uh, you know, I'm I'm sorry I didn't bring them what they were expecting. But also, um, I think that's where the urge for it to be. Um, in one box or another box sort of ended up. But I, I would make this argument. I would make an argument that it has something strange in, strangely in common with Kim Stanley Robinson um, because the Ministry for the Future, which I think is another important book that people should read, is full of some of the most bleak, horrifying uh, environmental disasters. It begins with an extended, unbearable heat wave in India. Uh, and yet, by the end of it, he's making an argument that this can be addressed. Uh, to, in, in other words, he's he's not denying the awfulness of some people's lives, but he's offering a way out. And it seems to me that what you're at least suggesting in this uh, is that UBI is is not a panacea, but it's something. We need something. Yeah. I don't know if it's this something, but we need something. And I feel like um, examining the ways in which this something might have effects um, can help us think about what some things might be more practical. Or maybe if we do want a UBI, how to make it practical and how to yeah. acknowledge the fact that some people will end up being hurt by the policy because you can't make any broad sweeping changes without inconveniencing some people or hurting some people. That's just, it would be really nice if the world didn't work that way, especially when it's stuff that agrees with my ideology. But, um, <laughs> you know, once I mean, it's a huge population. When I read it, I mean, the first time and, and, and ever since, I mean, I felt it was kind of pro the idea of UBI in a way without actually necessarily, as you say, getting tangled up because certainly the journey between 2022 the United States of America and this seems an almost unimaginable journey and yet if you look at events elsewhere in the world where they've got different political systems you can see the core of how some of this could happen you know if you look at what's happened in India in the last five years where you know you give 500 million people a bank account and a phone so you can give them social security because that's the cheapest way to get to give them social security you know there are systems that could work which doesn't mean that you will make them work or that they would work in your context. So that's kind of, you know, that made sense in, 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 in the context of January 15th. What I did want to ask, which is a grossly unfair question, right? <laughs> and I acknowledge that up front. It's probably been about a year since you kind of finished January 15th. You have a chance to look back at it, think about it, and obviously talk about it now. Um, when you look back, how typical do you see it up? Of, as being of your own work and your own concerns? Um, I feel like my work varies a fair amount. Um, the mm. fact that it's multiple different points of view being interwoven is a very mm. me thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. And actually having that structure really helped me um, finish the book as well as I hope, I know, helps the reader through it. Um, but it, it gave me a sense of what exactly was happening where, um, even if it was frustrating somehow, sometimes, because uh, I tried to get the arcs to, work together so that you're yeah. um, following the same progression right. of climax. Um, so sure. that's uh, a little delayed, but you're not getting it all at random times. That was frustrating. Um, I think that's very typical. Um, I feel like I've done less of the near future science fiction toward this point in my career than I did early in my career. Um, yeah. I wouldn't mind going back. Um, although the uh, novels that I'm working on are a fairy tale a surrealist contemporary and um, a far future on a colonial place planet. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, <laughs> I, I make no guarantees, <laughs> but it has an emphasis, I think, on characters over the um, the logistics, and I think that's probably yeah. pretty typical. Fair enough. And so, 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 given that January fifteenth is out, you're writing novels at the moment. What's 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 hap what's happening with you? What's next in in your world? I would really, really like to finish the novel and get it to my agent. I, uh, I turned 40 in mid-April and I was like, okay, in January, I was like, I'm going to finish a draft of the novel by my birthday. Damn it. And um, I wrote more than 100,000 words. Uh, I had some to start with, but uh, I didn't hit the end. Um, and so I've, I've had a couple months of being bitter about that. <laughs> Uh, but I, I am hoping that finishing that project is is near the top of the list. It, well, it's just the top of the list. Um, other things that I'm working on right now, um, apart from, you know, a short story, if, if I'm blocked on other things, uh, I have a novella that I'm working on with Anne Leckie that's um, mm -hmm. 
our future space adventure with space whales because I like space whales. Nice. And um, uh, I'm poking at a uh, sequel to um, one of my first successful stories, which is Erosphilia Agape, uh, which is about yep. um, a woman who owns a robot that has um, romantic purposes, romantic and sexual use. Um, actually, somebody wrote fan fiction of it, and oh, really? they posted the fan fiction onto AO3. And it's, it's I, I, I read it, and I got embarrassed, so I like mostly skimmed it. But my friend who like read it in detail was like, they had a really good pastiche of your style. And I was like, they <laughs> really did. And it, um, the way that this person approached it uh, made me think, huh, how would I approach that? Um, which is different. Um, but it was really cool to get to read that and, and inspiring. And, and it, it, mu- it must be nice to have something of this of this size. I mean, like, it's almost a novel in length. It's like just on the cusp, you know. Uh, yeah, and it, 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 I mean, I've, I have to say I felt as the editor on it that it was always a, a wonderful and that it was uh, an interesting arc to go through you know, effectively a six-year journey to get here, um, which yeah. I would never have anticipated back in, back in uh, must have been Kansas City or something when we spoke. So, you know, it, it, it's wonderful. Um, I am curious, given, the, given how, uh, how well it works as a interwoven collection of essentially mainstream stories, if, uh, if, if you're getting attention from outside the community, outside of the SF community. Well, um, I got a review in an economics journal, and it made me really, really happy. Um, they liked it. They, you know, there were points where they were like, this doesn't make sense. And I was like, yep, I've been caught. But mostly they seemed to like it and um, suggested it might end up on economics class syllabi. And I was like, oh, I feel so fancy. Um, and I've actually gotten a couple films rights requests just for like, no, no, um, no bidding, but like, hey, put yeah. me in touch with your agent, which... I yeah. was surprised about, um, it's, but it's neat. No, I'm, I'm actually not surprised at all. No, I'm not. I, I, I was thinking this is, this, it's not just a film adaptation. It's, it's tailor-made for a renewable series in which you, every week could be another UBI thing. You could go on for six or seven seasons. You'd have another six feet under here. It's, uh, it's, That's it, amazing. It's also the sort of thing that could lend itself to a number of different writers and approaches, which yeah. would happen in TV. Mm. that's true it could be episodic pretty easily or um you know if you don't want to have that you know 60 or 70 characters you could always have two or three episode arcs i mean i I don't know people who actually write tv would have better ideas than i do but um it would be really cool to see it um if that were to happen i got really bonded to the characters too so i felt like um uh that probably spoke well of the characters coming across on the page if people can imagine actors hopefully (laughs) Just as a, as a quick tangent, I noticed sort of both what you're talking about, what you're working on, and the things that I've seen published, you collaborate quite a bit. What is it that attracts you about collaboration? Um, I'm mostly collaborating with Anne at this point, um, but I have collaborated with a lot of other people. Um, uh, it's kind of fun and exciting, you know, mm-hmm. you have an idea, they have an idea, you combine it. Sometimes it's easier to not take... Um, one of my uh, problems in terms of strangling my own writing is that I'm incredibly perfectionistic. Um, yeah. So for each of these short stories, certainly including January 15th, I retype them every time I redraft them. So oh. they'll get retyped, you know, probably 15 times more in certain sections, less in others. And this becomes less feasible the longer the piece of work is. Sure. Uh, so uh, when I'm working with Anne, I can also sort of just be like, well, but she also has control over these words and I don't have to strangle each of them into exactly the right place. Um, We can be a little bit looser with what we're coming up with together. So it's kind of relaxing. Um, And also then I get to hang out with Anne. (laughs) Which is cool, yeah. It should be fun. Do do you write face-to-face? Well, you you say space, I mean. Well, no. Uh, We um, we don't. Um, We I am. You know, we, we send messages online um, uh, yeah, yeah. or through Minecraft recently. Um, really? Well, I went out to uh, stay with Anne in last uh, last September, which is um, when we did a bunch of the writing on the novella. And um, uh, her daughter really likes Minecraft. And they were like, do you want to play Minecraft? And I was like, I have not played Minecraft with anyone else, but I like you so much. 
<laughs> I will play. I will try. <laughs> that is friendship. Yeah. I guess the days of, um, you, you see stories about early collaborators like Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornblitz literally taking turns at the typewriter, putting in a oh, new yeah. piece of paper and just taking, or, or, uh, or C.L. Moore and, uh, and Henry Kuttner doing that sort of thing. And then, and then there was the era, somebody's got to write a history of collaborations because there was the era in which people would mail floppy disks back and forth to each other. Uh, oh, wow. I, I know when Peter Straub and Stephen King were collaborating on uh, Talisman, they were each using Wang processors and 300 baud modems, so it would spend hours putting this thing in the phone so it would get to the other person. Um, and now it's got to be as easy as having a person in the other room. We work in Google Docs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Literally just access each other's. I um, One of the other things I'm doing that's not... Uh, that's very related to science fiction and fantasy, but the readers are very separate, is um, there's a middle grade series called Wings of Fire, which is uh, written by Tui Sutherland. They're quite fun. Um, and most adult readers are just sort of stare at me. And then anytime there's like an 11 or 12 year old or a parent of an 11 or 12 year old, they're like, they've read that every night for the past year or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's it's super fun working on, on it. Uh, what I'm doing is that my friend Barry, who's a graphic novelist um, who works with middle grade um, yeah. was hired to help do the adapt to do the adaptations from the, the book to the graphic novel, graphic novel. not the drawing but just the scripting so Barry and I write the scripts and then they get passed to the artist and the scripts are based as heavily as possible on as true as possible to the books as as they can be so yeah. I like to make that clear you know we are not adding Tui Sutherland is the creative force here um, yeah. But um, we can do that in a Google Doc too, and so Keep that's simple. really convenient. Yeah. Well, well, it sounds like you're busy, which is a wonderful thing, and it sounds like we're going to see a lot more work from you in the coming couple of years, which is also a very, very good thing. But for now, you know, we can say that January fifteenth is in all good bookstores, online and off, just anywhere you could possibly want to look for it, and. I mean, I'm terribly biased, but I think it's a wonderful piece and hope that listeners will look for it. But for now, Rachel Swirsky, thank you so very much for making time to talk to us today. Of course. It's wonderful to see both of your faces um, and hear both of your voices. And um, thank you for, for listening, everybody who has been listening. And maybe we'll all get together in Chicago for Worldcon. That would be uh, great. And until then, until sometime at least, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.